appreciate that introduction. I don't remember the examination. I still don't remember it. <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad it all went well. Um, when, when, whenever I am, have the privilege of coming to a church like this in, in Richmond, um, I see some old friends and appreciate that so much. It gives me so much pleasure to see people who've loved me and people I've loved for a long time. And they always say, where's Jackie? And I, I appreciate them saying that because uh, although Jackie couldn't come this morning with me, she was very disappointed because she was on the staff here at West End years ago as counselor. But her back went out. It's, she's getting better and doing better, but she couldn't make the trip. But I always appreciate it because Howard and Jackie go together. They belong together because we're married to each other. So you can't really think of her without me. It's too bad for her. But then you can't really think about me without her. That's good for me. Well, that is a little picture, marriage, of the union that God has given us as believers with the, the, the resurrected Christ. Um, and this is a central part of the teaching of the New Testament. Uh, the church lost its vision of the teaching of much of Scripture for a long time. Um, Martin Luther recaptured it in many ways. It took him a while to come to stronger conclusions and make those conclusions known, and then he grew. He was a big man. He was an irascible, um, funny, brilliant, dominating person. He had great courage. He also had some pretty big flaws. Um, so he, not only his enemies, but also his friends had a hard time with him. Um, but as uh, John Calvin said about him, younger reformer, he said, God has given him to us, and so we'll take him the way he is because he brought us the gospel again. And that's what we celebrate so many centuries later, that wonderful gospel. We're remembering and we're giving thanks today for the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, 1517 to 2017. Martin Luther was a pastor, and when he nailed these theses, 95 theses on the church door, uh, he was giving these propositions. There are 95 statements that he was making, and he was asking for debate. It wasn't really a protest as such. He was doing what university professors do. They put up positions and saying, let's discuss this, let's debate this. It's like we'd put something on the bulletin board for consideration. But he was raising objections to the pastoral practices of the church, the medieval church. People's consciences were burdened with sin, and the church was offering not very much consolation. The practice of buying indulgences was a way of paying a fee, monetary fee, to um, lessen someone's sufferings in purgatory. And so the idea was that if you had not done enough good works, you had to suffer for your sins in the pains, the fires of purgatory, temporary but terrible. But if you paid a fee, 
the Pope in Rome would remit a certain number of your sins. And Luther said, it's not the Pope of Rome who can forgive sins, and it's not the church that can forgive sins. It's Jesus Christ alone who can forgive sins. That may sound like a very obvious thing, but it was not obvious at the time. The problem was the idea, this is what the church believed, that a person has to love God first, and only then would God respond and be gracious. They called it the sacrament of penance. And this is how you kept up your relationship with God, by this penance. Uh, It had three parts. It had sorrow, confession, and works of satisfaction. And Luther complained. He said that sorrow for sin had become a human effort that prepared the heart for approaching God, a kind of merit. Because this is what they said in the church. If you do your very best, God will not deny his grace. But see, that's not very helpful because when do you know that you've done your very best? And Luther said, no one can ever have a confidence in God on that basis. This only created doubt. And confession to a priest had become the occasion for a kind of tyranny rather than pronouncing free forgiveness for Christ's sake. Uh, The good works that the priest required might be something like fast for three days. This is the way that you do works of satisfaction. But if you failed, then the forgiveness would also fail. And this, what does that do? Well, it turns people's hearts toward human works rather than to God's free promises. No freedom there. So Luther says, if you can't get righteousness by human performance, where can you get it? Where can you find it? He said, it's found in the message of the word of God when we receive it. By faith. And that was his, the reason he talked about faith alone. God himself provided it by sending his son. He, he sent his son, and we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by doing good works, not by outward deeds prescribed by a priest. We receive it by receiving God's free promise. Now, you know, we just sang, have mercy on us, good Lord, good Lord, Isn't that beautiful? And didn't you love to repeat, good Lord? That's what Luther was saying. The Lord is good. The Lord is not just someone kind of scouring your life to see how much you can do good. Not that. But the Lord is good. And the Lord cares for people. And the Lord offers grace freely when we receive the promise by believing the gospel. He freely offers grace to us in his word, and he's worthy of our confidence. That's what Luther was saying. That's why faith is so important. What does faith do? It's not a kind of virtue. It's not a kind of God looks and says, oh, there's a good person. That's not what faith does. Faith renounces its goodness. It says, Lord, you're good, and I look to you, and I trust you because you are so good. I renounce every claim of good in myself and just trust you. So Luther made this point. He said, faith alone simply receives everything from the gracious God. If you believe, you have it all. If you don't believe, then you don't have anything. And that's faith's great power. It makes us one with the bridegroom. These are the beautiful words that Luther describes this 
union with Jesus Christ by. He didn't use the phrase union with Christ. He talked about a royal marriage. He says this, By this mystery, as the Apostle Paul teaches, Christ and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh, and if between them there is a true marriage, it follows that everything they have they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. The believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has, as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these. We shall see the unspeakable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, damnation. Now let faith come between them. And sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. By the wedding ring of faith, he shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. Her sins cannot now destroy her. And she has that righteousness of Christ, her husband, and can say, If I have sinned, yet Christ, my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. And all mine is his, and his is mine. Who can appreciate this Glorious, royal marriage, he says. Her sins cannot now destroy her. And all that by faith and by faith only. So he's saying that we're united to Jesus Christ by faith. He was a great figure, Luther was. He had great flaws too, but he was right. When we receive Jesus Christ by faith alone, we receive all that he's done for us as our own. So let's turn from Luther to Paul, which is what Luther would want us to do. For Paul, to be a Christian is to be united with Jesus Christ by faith, to be one with Christ, to be united with Christ, to have union with him, the royal marriage. And here in Ephesians 1, Paul describes this with the little phrase, in Christ. That phrase occurs more than 150 times in the New Testament. And the whole chapter is like a song. Paul is so happy, he keeps saying this refrain, almost singing it, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What exactly is grace? It's not God winking or shutting his eyes tight and not looking at what we are. It's not God, as it were, playing favorites. Grace is having a share with Jesus Christ in all he has accomplished and in all and all that he now is. Christ is alive from the dead. We believe in him. We come into fellowship with him. So listen to God's word as the apostle writes here in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, if you don't count it or not, but there are about ten times in that passage, Paul says, in him. So how do we make sense of this? How do we think about it? How do we put it in a, a straightforward way? This beautiful and wonderful thing is such a mystery, but it's so great, this royal marriage. Well, it has three dimensions. Believers were chosen in Christ. Believers were redeemed in Christ. And believers are made one with Christ by spirit-worked faith. So there's an eternal dimension. We call that predestinarian union. A past representative dimension in Christ's death and resurrection and a present living dimension to union with Christ. And not three different unions, it's one looked at from different angles. So let's look at each one. First of all, believers were chosen in Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, God thought of you as in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what he says in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that before any of us came to faith and before we were born and even before he called the universe into existence, in fact, his choice was eternal. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the eternal God never thought of his own son, Jesus Christ, apart from his fellowship with you. Predestinarian union. The father had his plan before the world was. The father chose us with a purpose. Verse 4 again that we should be holy and blameless in his presence. This was his goal. The goal was that we would be holy before him. So holiness was not the reason for his choice. It was the goal of his choice. In other words, he didn't choose us on account of anything beautiful that he foresaw in us, not good works, not faith. He chose us that we should be holy. Okay. But we say, well, but why did he choose me? In Christ. And Paul's answer in verse 5 is In love, he predestined you. He loved you. But then if we say, Well, okay, but why did he love me? Again, Paul answers verse 5 It was according to the purpose of his will. But, but why did God purpose that? We say. And the only answer that he gives is Because it was his loving will. It was God's. God's own sovereign love. It was God's kindness. And we can never get behind that or go deeper than that. God's free desire. What gave God most pleasure was this great love. 
that God chose you with his son. So there was never a time in which God didn't think of you along with Jesus Christ so that you also would be his son or daughter. Now you hear this. What can we do except praise and thank God for his grace? Sometimes people say this is a problem. This idea, this notion of uh, an eternal plan of God where he chooses people freely is a problem. It's a rock on which you can put your feet in the turbulent storms that life brings. This world is like a rushing river, isn't it? And in this rushing river, where do we have confidence? We have confidence because God's choice is his free choice. That's the love of God. That's the grace of God. And we should fall down and praise God and love God for this loving choice. Uh, One writer about this says, if you have to contribute even just a pebble to your own salvation, you will live in lifelong fear that this pebble is just not big enough. A life of Christian fanaticism will displace joy and faith because you can never be sure. See, this is what Luther was rebelling against. If, on the other hand, the choice depends entirely on God, he receives the greatest degree of glory and you receive the highest degree of certainty. This is the idea of predestination. So, first aspect, we were one with Jesus Christ in God's plan, predestinarian union. And second, union with Christ means that God thought of us as one with Christ in the past, in his once-for-all death and resurrection. We call this representative union. God sent him as our redeemer, as our substitute. At the end of verse 6, Paul refers to him as the beloved. And then he writes, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood. Redemption means being freed. So we're freed by his blood, and that's a reference to Jesus' death, his blood. Redemption means that he's freed us from the guilt of our trespasses. God accepted his death as the ransom price, to free us from the guilt of our many trespasses. But notice that God not only accepted his death as an offering, God himself actually paid that offering. He not only required the sacrifice, he not only provided the sacrifice, in a very real sense he also became the sacrifice. Because God treated Christ as our sins deserved on the cross, And we mustn't overlook the greatness of this cost, not just to Christ, but to the Father as well. The greatness of the price shows the greatness of the love. Paul calls Christ, in verse 6, the beloved. He was the Father's precious, only begotten Son. As he said to him at the Jordan, the Jordan River, you are my beloved Son. I am delighted in you. The Father loved him before he created the world. The Father loved him. And he loved the Father. That's an eternal, glorious love. God had said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. But remember, Abraham did not have to offer 
his son as a sacrifice because God provided a ram for a substitute. But the father did offer his son as a sacrifice. And that means that God loved us before Christ died for us. Not just because he died for us, but before Christ died for us. He loved us and he provided Jesus Christ for us. And he delivered up his son for us. Why? So that our many trespasses might be forgiven. As Paul puts it, according to the riches of his grace. Riches of grace. You live a long time, you begin to get a little bit of a sense of how gracious God really is. You live a long time, you realize how many trespasses you actually have committed and broken God's law and his commandments. But the riches of his kindness, the riches of his grace caused him to give his only son to redeem us through his blood. Now we say in response, don't we? We say, what can I possibly do to deserve this? And the Lord replies, I require no comparable sacrifice. Believe in my son. You can't do anything. I love you. I offer him freely to you. And so Luther would say, if you try to put obedience to the law in the place of Christ, you're actually setting yourself up as an idol. You're the idol. Don't try to take the place of Jesus Christ. You can't obey God like Christ did. You can't suffer for sins like Christ did. And God will never accept you on that basis because his judgment is holy. But he offers you life. He offers you forgiveness freely in his son. Entrust yourself to this good God. Luther describes the righteousness we receive by faith as an alien righteousness. That's what he calls it, an alien righteousness. That means it's outside of us. So God doesn't look at us and say, oh, there's Bill or there's Jill or there's Howard. Look what a good person. God doesn't look at us and say, Look what faith, how much faith that person has. No, God looks at you and he says, you are one with my son. The righteousness that he worked out and suffered to attain, I count as yours. It's yours freely. And so Bill or Jill or Howard is judged to be righteous with an alien righteousness. It's not Yours, it's his righteousness that the Father accepts. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So we were one with Christ in history as he represented us, as he died for us once for all. Then the third dimension of union with Christ is what I've called living union. And that means that God has made us one with Christ by spirit-worked faith. When we believed in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, verse 13, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that happens in our lives, in our own personal history. And this is something that didn't happen in eternity, like our election. It didn't happen in the first century, like Jesus' death and resurrection. It happened in our own personal history when we heard and believed the gospel. And we can see this in Paul's own life. As Paul writes to the Roman church, he writes to Rome 
um, in Romans 16. And he says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. So there's a before and an after. So there's a before and an after to being in Christ. Once Paul was not in Christ, but now he is. And so wonderful as it is, redemption from punishment was not an end in itself. The final goal is that we might be restored to living fellowship with the resurrected Christ. And that's the third dimension of this union, living union. Now, let me look quickly at some verses in the next chapter in Ephesians where Paul uses the metaphor of walking. And I want you to notice the bookends. He begins this passage talking about walking in sin and death, and he ends the passage talking about walking in new creation, good works. Listen to the difference. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Ephesians, he says, were walking... That was their way of life. Their walking was a kind of walking death because they're in rebellion against God and God was angry with them. They were children of wrath. That's the beginning of the passage. Then at the end of the passage, he says, these same Ephesians are walking in good works that God is pleased with. What happened to them? It comes right at the center of the passage. God, out of the greatness of his love, raised you up with Jesus Christ. You were united with Jesus Christ by faith in him. And as a result, you are completely different. Well, they made a 180 degree change in direction. They're walking now in good works. How is that so? It is so because they are in Jesus Christ. They are alive from the dead in Jesus Christ. Think about Paul's experience, Paul himself. If we think about Ephesians 1, Paul was eternally elect in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4. And Jesus died for Paul's sins on the cross and was raised again from the dead, Ephesians 1, 7. But for a long time, Paul was still under God's wrath. He said uh, in, in Ephesians 2, he says, we all were walking like this in rebellion against God. But God, who is rich in mercy, what did he do? He gave him the gift of faith. And that gift of faith caused him to believe the gospel and thereby to be united with the resurrected Christ. See, God gives us resurrection life now. 
Not just in the last day. He's going to do that. But already, already now for every believer, we were dead. But now you're raised, we're raised from the dead. He did this because of his great love for us. Because of this wonderful grace. We were really dead before. But now the power of the resurrection is at work in our lives. We're a new creation walking in obedience to God by this amazing grace. Now see, this is grace. We did not love God. God loved us. And God made us alive with his son, Jesus Christ. Just a couple of thoughts then on the amazing blessing of this royal marriage. When we're united to Jesus Christ by faith alone, we receive twin gifts. The gift of forgiveness or justification and the gift of obedience or sanctification. And this marriage will never end. And see, this was part of the problem in the Middle Ages. People thought that you could receive grace and then sin it away and then receive it again and then sin it away. But you never knew whether you still had it. And you could never have confidence that you would have it. What's the confidence that the reformers wanted believers to have? It's the confidence that the Apostle Paul is laying out here. Jesus Christ is our salvation. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. When we entrust ourselves to him, we have a share in all that he's done for us. And that relationship can never be broken. We have both of them, these wonderful gifts in our living union with Christ. Even though they're different, they're distinct, these gifts, they're not the same, but they can't be torn apart from each other. This is how John Calvin put it. He said, although we may distinguish them, Christ contains both of them inseparably in himself. Do you wish then to attain righteousness in Christ? You must first possess Christ. But you cannot possess him without also being made a partaker in his sanctification because he cannot be divided into pieces. Since, therefore, it is solely by expending himself that the Lord gives us these benefits to enjoy, he bestows both of them at the same time, the one never without the other. So when we're in Christ, God counts his righteousness as ours. He forgives all our sins. We're justified. Praise God. That never changes. When we're in Christ, we're raised from the dead in the inner man. And so we're enabled to live before the Lord and please the Lord. When we're in Jesus Christ, we're no longer the enemies of God the Father. But now we're sons, beloved sons. The Father credits his righteousness to us. The Father enables us to live by the indwelling of his spirit and to be obedient And the scripture calls that sanctification. And because we're in Christ, the Father gives us the status of sons, never to be changed, just as Jesus is God's own beloved son. Forgiven, freed, beloved. Why? On account of being one with the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace you've been saved, he says, through faith. This not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, grace is union with this resurrected person, this living person. Now, we've talked about it theologically. You've been so patient and listened to me speak about this for a number of minutes. Just think about this for one second more. Jesus Christ, can you trust him? 
Every single believer knows intuitively that he and she can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He is good. He is powerful. He is gracious. The gospel is so simple. It's so simple. It's also so profound. But the littlest child can trust Jesus Christ. And that's what God is calling us to do. And trust ourselves to him. When we see this about ourselves, then we are free to live in obedience to God. In verse 9 to 9, I just read, good works are the enemy of grace. Good works. No works so that we may not boast. But then in verse 10, they're the product of grace. Why? Because we are new creation in Christ. If I'm outside of Jesus Christ, the, the requirements of God are my enemy because God is my enemy. But if I'm united to Jesus Christ, the requirements of God are my friend because God is my friend. And that's why Paul writes as he does. We are new creation in Christ, walking in good works that God prepared before him. And this means that we're free to serve. I don't have to make a place for myself in the church. I don't have to make a place for myself or look for acceptance all the time. Why? Because God has given me a place. He's given me a place in his own son. And so we don't need to commend ourselves constantly or look for acceptance all the time. Listen to these beautiful words, Luther says. He says, although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure, free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith, which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with my whole heart, with an eager will, do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father? I will give myself to my neighbor willingly, take no account of his gratitude or ingratitude, of praise or blame, of gain or loss, as his father does, so the son does. What does the father do? He gives all things freely. In his son. Glorious. This is what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. Now, you see, you don't have to go to some other intermediary. This is what uh, Kevin and Joe were saying earlier about mediator. There's only one mediator. You don't need to have somebody else to bring you to heaven. You have a Lord in heaven, a risen Christ in heaven. You entrust yourself to him you're united to him, and all that's his, is, uh, his becomes yours. And so you can pray, and God accepts your prayers. And this is what Luther says about that. He says, it does, you don't have to go to a priest to pray. You're a priest because you're united to Jesus Christ. And not only that, you're a king. Nothing in the world can possibly hurt you. Really? Yeah, because you're one with Jesus Christ, and he's the Lord of heaven. And earth. Even if God calls you to suffer and die, you still are the Lord over all things. This wonderful marriage, wonderfully, will never end. It began in eternity past. It will stretch to eternity future. And death will not separate you from Jesus Christ. And one day, God will raise you from the dead in Christ Jesus. Praise God for this wonderful, wonderful, glorious grace. Let me pray for us. 
Our gracious Father, we give you thanks together for the wonderful union that you have prepared and brought to pass. A great mystery, which wasn't known in other times, but now has been made known, that we are united to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his future, which is our future. We praise you for what you did 500 years ago and that we still have the gospel. Oh, Lord, let us believe it better and proclaim it to the world. What a wonderful God you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.